0: to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined once again by Kathleen Vanderwill. Kathleen, welcome.
1: It is so lovely to be with you again, Pat.
0: Uh, glad to have you here and uh, glad to let everyone know that we are tackling another Shakespeare-based opera today.
1: Yes, it is on my bucket list to do all of the Shakespeare-based operas for you, <laughs> as long as you'll let me.
0: <laughs> well, this is kind of interesting. It's Shakespeare-based and it's by a very famous composer, but it's not a very well-known opera, Das Liebesverbot.
1: Yes, well, it's it's based on one of Shakespeare's least known plays mm-hmm. to measure for measure. So that fits nicely.
0: Richard Wagner, a very young Richard Wagner, wrote this opera, Das Liebesverbot. This and his very first opera and all subsequent operas, of course, he is also his own librettist. But he does take inspiration where he finds it.
1: Yes. And although I would say it does follow the, well, more than just the general outlines of the play, but but Wagner does change quite a bit. So uh, we'll speak more to that as we go along.
0: Right. It's more of a departure from the, uh, strictly following the story than some operas are based on Shakespeare shows. But let's just take a moment and rewind a little bit in Wagner's life. He was born in 1813 and just A little bit of scuttlebutt you might be interested in knowing. (laughs) Wagner was the name of the man that his mother was married to, Friedrich Wagner. Might be his father, might not be his father. Friedrich Wagner died when Richard Wagner, baby Richard Wagner, was less than a year old. And in pretty short order, his mother married this close family friend of theirs, Ludwig Geier. He was close to the family before Richard's birth. After his birth and then after the death of his mother, Johanna's husband, from whom Richard Wagner gets his last name, they're they're married very quickly, those two. And Ludwig Geyer is the man who raises Richard Wagner as his own son. So who knows what the real answer is? Richard mm-hmm. Wagner was very insistent that no, Friedrich Wagner was definitely his father, but uh, doesn't really matter in the long run, does it?
1: No, but... You know we love some 200 year old gossip and this play and opera are very much about morality and having babies within matrimony so that's yeah
0: that's fair that's fair and there's also i mean there's also this other side that let's just let's just deal with this up front with wagner it's also believed that he might not have wanted to consider Geyer having been his father because that's a name that a lot of German Jews had, and he was not eager to connect himself with that. It, I mean, it did turn out later that Geier seems not to have had the, any Jewish heritage. It doesn't matter, but it mattered to Wagner because, again, let's just be honest up front: Wagner, for all his musical talent, is also well known for screeds against the Jewish Germans—an uncomfortable truth and one we should acknowledge.
1: Well. It's a good thing he didn't adapt The Merchant of Venice, so we don't have to talk about that. (laughs) Yes, I'm
0: glad for that. You know, it's very interesting. Das Liebesverbot, the ban on love, it's the translation for that title. It's got a lot of sensuality and issues of, of just really important human behavior morality. And it's also got some interesting expressions of national stereotypes going on as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Which is especially interesting because Wagner moved the setting from the original setting, which is Vienna, and he has moved it to Palermo. And that creates some interesting valences because the the absent duke at the beginning, who comes back in later as a deus ex machina character, he leaves his kingdom in the hands of, of Friedrich who is a German. Yeah. Whereas you don't have that valence in Measure for Measure because everyone is Viennese, Austrian. Yeah. Yeah. Austro Hungarian. That's true.
0: Okay. Before we get very deep into Das Liebesverbot and Measure for Measure, I just want to take a moment and talk about Wagner before he writes Das Liebesverbot, which he does in his early 20s. As far as we know, and not All the information you can get about Wagner is completely reliable because a lot of it comes directly from him. And he retrospectively may have changed some things about his own biography. Nevertheless, we do know that he didn't have tremendous amounts of musical training. I mean, he'd like to say, oh, he was entirely self-taught. Well, not completely true, but he didn't begin any kind of serious musical training until the age of 15. And then by the age of 20, he had written an opera. It's kind of amazing, but he did grow up in a very theatrical household. This Ludwig Geyer that I mentioned was a man of the theater. So all through his youth, Wagner was in the theater. So we know of Wagner as a very self-assured, well, that's putting it mildly, very (laughs) self-assured and competent dramatist. And he's imbibing all of that as he's growing up, understanding story and putting things on the stage, even if his musical training itself doesn't begin till later on. And he he is clearly, partially teaching himself because he's studying scores, scores of people like Beethoven, like Mozart, like Karl Maria von Weber. He is so dedicated to this art and this craft that he throws himself into it and he does become very self-confident. I mean, that's, that's uh, again, an understatement, but a definition of Wagner throughout his lifetime. He has great belief in his own capabilities to the point of driving some of the people around him completely crazy. <laughs> But his first work for the stage, called Lubold and Adelaide, is just that. It's a work for the stage that's a play. Perhaps he was intending to add some music to it later on. He never did. But it's very Shakespeare-inspired. He loved Shakespeare right from an early age. And this is something he writes and creates before he's even 20 years old. It's full of gory details. It's got ghosts and murderers and star-crossed lovers. But when he showed it to his sister in particular, he has one sister, Rosalie, who's an actress, and she's the primary breadwinner for the family. And she's appalled because it's so horrific. <laughs> yeah, that's why the, that might be why the music never gotten written. And then he does try his hand at another opera when he's about 20 years old, Hoxite, The Wedding, also gory, gruesome. And his sister said, you will destroy that. So it was a completed opera, but we don't have the complete opera anymore. They're just little wow. fragments that are left.
1: Power of sisters. <laughs> well,
0: power of whoever's making the money for the household, perhaps.
1: Yeah. I mean, that. I would I would read either of those in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, <laughs> you like that kind of stuff. I do. I love Gothic. But she,
0: I think she was very concerned about the public impression that his mm-hmm. creations would have. Well, his next one is called Define The Fairies, and that is a completed opera, that is one that still exists. She says, okay, Ricard, you got it right this time, and it has some of these elements that we know in later works from Wagner, where you've got the mortal world and the spirit world coming into contact with each other and acting upon each other, but interestingly, it never gets produced. It's a full-on opera that he creates just a little bit over the age of 20. I mean, he's a he's an unknown, right? And he tried to get it produced, but it didn't it actually wasn't produced until 1888, which is 5 years after Wagner himself died. It's got a little bit of the Orpheus and Eurydice energy where you, the the mortal has to go and save the the woman who she's encased in the fairy, she's encased in stone. It's a long story, but um, I thought it might be fun just to listen to a little bit of the music from Define the Fairies. It's right in the beginning of the opera and it's this chorus of fairies just setting the mood in this fairy world, this fairy land. for everyone, and that is the one and only piece we are going to hear today from Richard Wagner's earliest fully existing opera, The Fairies, Das Fien. And that's Fairyland, setting the, the lovely scenario of these happy fairies before a mortal man shows up and, and things go a little askew in the idyllic world. Going on to.
1: <laughs> a lot of the female characters in, in this opera could um, sympathize with that.
0: Yeah, fair enough. In terms of Wagner's life, he's he moves around a lot in his early years. <laughs> he has a hard time finding a position, keeping a position, and keeping everyone happy with him and not being chased by deck collectors. And the theater companies themselves have a little bit of trouble with solvency. For Das Liebesverbot, he's working in Magdeburg. It does premiere in... 1836. So it was actually March 29th in 1836. I don't usually mention the the month and the day, do I? But I have a reason.
1: And what is that reason?
0: <laughs> well, if you think about when Easter is likely to fall, it's in fact during Holy Week, that week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, that this premiere takes place. And with a name like the ban on love, that raised an eyebrow or two. And so the very First performance, by the way, there was only one performance of this during Wagner's life. There were supposed to be two at a minimum, but there was only one. We'll get to that in a sec. This very first performance, the officials, the authorities said, no, 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 you can't have a name like that. And so they changed the name to, as Kathleen, you just mentioned earlier that that he reset it in Palermo. So it was called the novice from Palermo. Because this lead soprano is a, is a novice in a convent, and he wanted to call it. It is usually called this when you find librettos these days of it or scores these days, a grand comic opera. They said, no, 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 we can't call it a comic opera during Holy Week. Just call it a grand opera. So there it was. They changed it. The novice from Palermo, a grand opera, although it was just two acts. It wasn't grand in five acts like the French.
1: Well, it's not exactly that comic, so I, I might I might quibble with with calling it a grand comic opera.
0: You know, I have a question, speaking of which, the Shakespeare play that this takes inspiration from, Measure for Measure, is classed as one of Shakespeare's comedies, but I've also heard it referred to as one of Shakespeare's problem plays.
1: Could you explain that? Yes. So this is actually one of my favorite terms for Shakespeare. <laughs> The problem plays? Problem plays, because it's coined in in the late 19th century by a a critic. His name is F.S. Boas, and he wrote this treatise called Shakespeare and His Predecessors that was very influential. And he classified a certain number of Shakespeare's plays as problem plays. (laughs) Surely there's
0: nothing wrong with Shakespeare. There can't be anything wrong with Shakespeare. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. It's not that there's a problem with Shakespeare, but that these plays have a problem <laughs> posed to the characters and they have to solve it. Mm. And often that problem is a societal problem as it is in, in this play, which is very much about shame and licentiousness and morality. And But it's not as much in favor to call them problem plays anymore. And I think part of that is because the, the term problem play has really evolved to mean like these plays are difficult to understand and classify oh. and they're not really comedies and they're not really tragedies and they're not really histories. So the problem is really one of what do we do with them? And so I I like it when they're called problem plays because I think that that's really shows that that we we don't know how to really classify a play like measure for measure. And I think people like to classify Shakespeare's plays because it it makes them a little bit easier to understand yeah. and to expect because a comedy is going to end in marriage. The tragedy is going to end in a lot of bodies being wheeled away at a <laughs> <Yeah>. cart. Um, <laughs> but what is a problem play like measure for measure? Hamlet was actually classified originally as a problem play too, although we we would think of it more as a, as a tragedy now. But ones you may recognize like The Winter's Tale oh, yeah. and The Merchant of Venice, mm. All's Well That Ends Well, Troilus and Cressida, all were considered problem plays because there's not really a straightforward resolution to the problems within the play. And it can't quite finish some of these plays and go, well, everything ended happily for everyone. Like in A Midsummer Night's Dream, for instance, which everybody ends married and happy and singing. Well, we we do
0: end with some marriages here. So I
1: guess that's partly why it gets
0: classed as a comedy.
1: Yes. Yes. It has several marriages at the end, including one that is kind of questionable, which we'll we'll discuss.
0: Right. Yes. Not all marriages are happy, even in the beginning. Yes. (laughs) Okay. I think we've given a lot of pre-information. Let's open (laughs) the opera. Besides that, that jolly, very jolly overture that we heard and a little bit underneath us as well, the opening of the opera is, it's jolly, it's rambunctious, it's a little a little unusual.
1: Yes. In the opera, we're in Palermo and Sicily. So in both Measure for Measure and in this, this opera, there's a, a heavy Catholicism everywhere. This is called the novice for a reason. It is heavily concerned with Catholicism and Catholic morality, mm. which makes the whole Holy Week staging very interesting. So when we first open in the town square, there's a lot of hubbub. Yes. (laughs) I will say there's almost like a tinge of almost a riot. It feels like people are a little bit unhinged and it's partially because the laws are extremely strict in this town in Sicily, but they're not being, they haven't been enforced by the governor, the Duke. He's the King of Sicily in this opera. He has left and he has left his lieutenant, his sort of state holder named Friedrich, who is German, he has given him the powers. He has basically said, if you want to clean up the town, that's on you. Go ahead. (laughs) Here's some power. (laughs) Do whatever you think is right. And Friedrich is like super straight-laced and he wastes no time in trying to clean up the many brothels of Palermo. Yeah. And
0: so as we open, we don't see the king. He's gone. And the characters know that Friedrich is back there wanting to impose this stricter form of order. Let's follow those laws if they're on the books. But this opening scene, the audience doesn't necessarily know all that. We haven't seen any of that play out on stage. It's just this fun-loving crowd, but something's a little frantic about it.
1: Yeah. And, and I would say it's the same, same feeling at the beginning of Measure for Measure, where one of the many contrasts in the play and in the opera is, well, it's in the name, measure for measure, right? So it's about balance.
2: Mm. We're, we're trying mm-hmm. to seek
1: balance, but there is no balance at the beginning. <laughs> Everything is either all the way one way or all the way another way. So you have people who have been accustomed to live under extremely strict laws that have not been enforced because they're too strict. And so you've got these laws on the book that are haven't been enforced. And all of a sudden, all of those laws are about to be enforced as strictly as they are written. Yeah. So there's a total paradigm shift. There's a flip. And people are so used to the sort of anarchy of the laws not being enforced and of the laws meaning nothing to them. Because if you're not enforcing the laws, then do they really matter? Mm -hmm. And what Shakespeare is ultimately saying is it is is better to have more moderate laws that are actually enforced so that people respect the concept of justice and the law than to have extremely strict laws that are not enforced or are enforced. (laughs) So, yeah, everybody's a little bit manic because they've been living in a strangely governed state. Okay, well, let's hear
0: these revelers in the beginning of the opera.
3: Mit er dem Prügel aus. Zum Teufel, das Lach, der Rauf der Wer hat die Schuhe daher geschickt? Wer wüsste, wohin man blickt? Sieh so! Was bringt
2: das Was kann das
3: hier? Sieh so! Hält ihr die Klamm, das Ende? Ich laufe ein und meine Kuhn! Auf was will nicht hin? Pack mal, man mit euch doch wohl. Ich will mich, ich tu ich tu mich, ich tu mich, ich tu Let's move inside the ring, from these engines on the gleis. For the killing, I'm going to start. i die going Die
0: These are our revelers out in the town square of Palermo in this early opera by Richard Wagner, Das Liebesverbot. Besides this full chorus, there are a lot of characters, named characters in this opera. But one of the ones that we meet pretty early on is Lucio. And I think there's a Lucio in Measure for Measure?
1: Yes, there is. He's sort of a foolish character. He's, He's foppish. He's a dandy. He's known as a fantastic. So he's sort of the larger than life character and he's friends with Claudio.
0: Okay, Claudio, who we haven't met yet, but both Lucio and Claudio are of the upper class. They have a little bit higher station than a lot of these folks here who, in fact, are visiting the pleasure houses of Palermo. Mm -hmm. But Lucio has an interaction with this young woman named Dorella early on in this revelry when things calm down enough that you can actually hear two people speaking to each other. And Dorella realizes, oh, she's going to be caught up in this net of morals enforcement. And she appeals to Lucio for help, citing the fact that he has promised to marry her. Not something she really thinks he's going to do, but okay, you promised me something, help me out of this mess.
1: And she's she's a character named Kate Keepdown in the <laughs> play Measure for Measure. Shakespeare loves his little uh his great names for characters describing what they do. She is she's a prostitute in the play. She's very obviously a prostitute that Lucio has or and in, in the play has been visiting and he has impregnated.
0: Oh, well, yeah. Here it's just you promised to marry me in the opera. And mm-hmm. she does seem to be a bit of a flirt, but she also will say later on to Claudio, this other high status fellow in the play, your sister used to employ me as her maid. So she had quite a respectable job previously. Mm -hmm. But that particular sister, Isabella, who is in fact our prima donna in the opera, has gone into a convent. So she doesn't need a lady's maid anymore. So this is the employment that she's found. But Lucio, he's just having a good time. And he's, Mm -hmm. he's not really interested in helping Dorella, but he's like, oh, well, that would completely get me off the hook from this (laughs) <laughs> ill-advised promise that I made. It's like, well, maybe I, could, maybe I could do that. But he's not taking any of that seriously. And then this Buffa character, Brigella, shows up, the chief of police, the chief constable. And he, he is, in fact, Buffa. And I'm going to just take a moment because that is mm-hmm. very much an Italian term being used here in this Richard Wagner German opera. We don't have time for a full study of all of the music, and that's probably not what you and I are qualified to do either, Kathleen. We can talk story. (laughs) But just a moment to say that this is being produced in the mid-1830s, so there's some nationalistic feelings going around in the German states at this time. But as far as opera goes, it's very interesting. Wagner himself will write about this at various times the Germans do not have as strong and recognizable an operatic tradition as people like the Italians or the French. And Wagner, who has every confidence that in time he's going to make a name for himself as an opera composer and wants to do so as a German opera composer. We mentioned the fact that he appreciated the works of Mozart, who has Germanic heritage. He's a big fan of Beethoven also a german and karl maria von weber also a german and weber articulates a little bit of that need as well for the germans to have their own style but there's this conventional wisdom out there that the the three early operas of wagner the ones that precede what's considered to be the first mature opera of wagner which is die fliegende holländer the three that precede that das fien the fairies that we mentioned this one and then rienzi which honestly that's his first very successful opera Conventional wisdom says in a very simplified manner that the Germanic folkloric tradition is seen in Das Fien, the strong influence of Italian opera is seen in this opera, and then the French influence is seen in Rienzi. Very much an oversimplification, but nice to have in mind here because Wagner is still trying to make a success of himself, trying to make the world go, ah, Wagner, and then let him do what he wants to do. Wagner was not there by a long shot yet, and he's still realizing that to get his operas produced, he needs to use some of those tried and true recognized styles, like the Italian, like the French, to hopefully get his operas attention so that they can be produced. As I said, there was only one production of this in his lifetime, so it wasn't as successful with this. But It is successful with his next opera, Rienzi, which hopefully we'll talk about at some point in the future. Anyway, Brigella, this buffa character, he comes on and he is all full of himself explaining that he's working under the authority of this Regent Friedrich that you mentioned. And he loves the idea that this is his opportunity to shine and to enforce the law. And all the rabble-rousers pretty much just laugh at him.
1: Yeah, you get a, a similar sort of, not exactly a similar character in, in Measure for Measure, but a similar concept of the Lucio character says, trying to shut down the brothels. It's like, well, you can't change human nature. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what the people are sort of showing as well that we, in, in the absence of strictly enforced laws, human nature is as it is. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing in this story. But one thing it definitely is is for sure is like, you, you're not going to repress people's desire to party and to, uh, to make merry, we shall say. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: it's true. And Lucio is one of the people who articulates that here in this opera. He says, what? No love, no wine. And you're canceling the carnival? But <laughs> like, how can you possibly do that? And interesting, when I was talking about the nationalism before, part of what gets said here by everyone on stage, except Brigella, who wants to curry favor with Friedrich, everyone says, oh, the German fool, meaning Friedrich. Interesting, too, we noted that this is a, a German who's been elevated, ambitious man who's been elevated to this role of, of authority and importance by the king of Sicily. And they laugh at him and they say, Ah, oh, let's send him home to his snow, oftentimes they will contrast the cold German with the hot-blooded Sicilians here in the opera. And again, remember, all of this libretto is being written by Wagner himself.
1: Well, we've we've already met some of the people who are being swept up in these changes, yeah. this more strict enforcement of the law. And, and the person who is perhaps most affected in this story is the young nobleman Claudio, who has engaged himself, or at least has has made promises to a young woman, and he has gotten her pregnant. So we have some parallels here with the character of Dorella, who is also finding herself in trouble because of her relationship with a man who she thought would marry her. So there's a similar instance of this going on with Claudio. So Claudio has been caught up in this restrictive crackdown because he has had an indiscretion with A woman he wants to marry but is not able to right now. And she is in the family way. Yes. So it has become obvious that this has happened.
0: Oh, Claudio.
1: But he wants to marry her. He does. He loves her. And this is the contrast between him and his friend. Lucio is a bit of a rake.
0: Mm. And I
1: think probably has had amorous indiscretions with many women, Is mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's implied. Whereas Claudio is true-hearted. He wants to marry this woman. And he just has not been able to.
0: Yeah. And the woman, Julia, is not... character and not a singer in this opera but her existence is absolutely key for what's going on here and he comes out and the tone will shift because he lets them know they're giving me the death penalty they're planning to execute me and lucio's like Mm -hmm. what why did you kill someone high treason no i ran afoul of these newly imposed strict laws with strict punishments and Lucio can't really believe it. It makes absolutely no sense. No sense at all.
1: Yeah, it sort of reminds me of, there's always silly news articles every once in a while about old laws on the books in the United States. Like I think North Carolina, you can't cohabitate with more than two people because it's considered two women because it could be a brothel. Like there's all these old laws on the books, all these blue laws, they call them. And it's as if somebody had come in and become president and said, okay, I'm going to enforce all of those laws to the letter. So everybody's sort of like, that's so archaic. That's not how we live our lives now. And the things they've done under a different regime are now being punished under this new regime.
0: Right. And Lucio takes another opportunity to criticize the fact that he's doing this because he's this German with this icy cold blood as opposed to the warm-blooded, amorous Sicilians. And Mm Claudio's like, fine, fine, but you got to get me out of this mess, my friend, Lucio, and I know what you need to do. You need to go find my sister, the one who's gone into the convent, Isabella. And this tenor, Claudio, sings a lovely piece where he pleads with his friend and he acknowledges, yeah, I may have done something that's not technically correct, but it's forgivable and I want to make it right. And the crowd will join in later on and say, it's Friedrich's fault. Friedrich is the one who's causing all the trouble. And Lucio agrees to go see Sister Isabella in the convent. the opera for everyone and this is Wagner's Das Liebesverbot probably not a name everyone knows very well in terms of Wagner's <laughs> operas it's from his early work and honestly not that often is it performed before we return to the opera and talk about our next scene which will be at the convent i want to just mention about the premiere of this opera in Magdeburg it does premiere during holy week and the first performance it's not very successful. <laughs> it's, Wagner was given the opportunity to mount a performance. The first performance, the the proceeds of that will go to the opera company. The second performance will be to benefit himself. And that was that was not unusual. It was that he had expenses to recoup and that he could take the profits of the second performance. He even had the choice of what piece to put on during these slots. And he said, Well, of course, I'm gonna put my own work on and he had a limited amount of time to rehearse. It was at the end of the season, and some of the strongest, best performers had gone off to other opera companies, other opportunities. He writes about it in his autobiography several decades later. Again, so you you take it with a grain of salt when you read anything that Wagner has written. But he explains that the company worked very, very hard because of their great affection for him. And they they tried and they tried, but it was hard. It was There's a lot going on in this opera to learn all the words. Turns out at the end of it all, when the performance happens, the sopranos, the women, the female performers, they had their parts. And even though during rehearsal, Wagner would literally sing with the male performers to make sure they had their words, he couldn't do that during an actual performance. And the... <laughs> I playing Lucio, the main tenor, the main male singer in this opera, he forgot a bunch of the words, and he just started singing words from other operas. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's clever. It's what I would have done. Just keep going. (laughs) Keep tap dancing. And Wagner will
0: write about this and he says, it was the poor audience. They didn't stand a chance because there's a lot of words. The words were not matching the story that was going on. And there were no books printed, You know, because it was pretty common to have the words from the opera printed. But this impoverished opera company in Magdeburg did not have the funds to do that. So it was a bit of a fiasco, this very first performance. But He read that as, oh, okay, well, this made no impression on anyone. It wasn't a failure. It wasn't a success. It was just kind of a blank slate. There's a second performance, and hopefully we'll make a better impression. Well, I mean, word gets out when it's a total mess, right? (laughs) But it gets worse. It gets worse. For this second performance, he had looked out into the audience to see how many people were in the audience. Three people were in the audience. Oh, no. Yeah, but that's not the worst of it. Apparently, the husband of the lead soprano, Isabella's husband, the singer for Isabella, her husband, looks out and see there's only three people, and he's like, okay, this is my golden opportunity. He was under the belief, might have been true, that his wife, the woman singing Isabella, was having an affair with the tenor singing the part of Claudio right behind the curtain before opening, smacks Claudio in the nose, blood everywhere, and then everyone decides oh okay there's a fight going on and everyone in the company joins in and gets out their grudges about everyone else and it's just a melee behind the curtain and one of the people in the (laughs) management comes out and announces to the three people um there will be no show this evening
1: oh my gosh (laughs) honestly there's no publicity is bad publicity right Well,
0: it didn't get another performance. And pretty shortly thereafter, Wagner had to flee Magdeburg and he goes to Riga, Latvia to take a position. And by by the way, he has gotten married while he's in Magdeburg. He marries his first wife, Mina, there. She's from a performing family and they they go off to Riga together. (laughs) And then, by the way, later on, he will have to escape from Riga and Just be ahead of his creditors.
1: Well, you can see why his first failed attempts at at opera were all these lugubrious gothic dramas. Mm. It seems like he he lived his life a little bit that way. He did a little bit. Okay, well,
0: (laughs) that's that's the story of the uh, early performances. Back to our story, we we have finished our first scene in the first act, and, and our second scene takes place at this convent where Isabella resides, and she's with a friend. And we we have all the nuns out there in the beginning, but these two novices, Isabella and Mariana, are our real focus.
1: Yes, Isabella, her background, as we've alluded to, is that she is she's a noblewoman. She's Claudio's sister, but she has decided to retreat to a very strict convent. And Mariana, too, as we'll see very shortly, has her own reasons, her own history Mm. as well. Perhaps worth saying that in this time period, it was very... Unlikely that, ai don't want to say a normal person, but a a non-wealthy, a non-aristocrat woman would become a nun. Convents were a place where women who couldn't find a husband, but who had money, would often bequeath their dowries. Mm -hmm. Or if you found yourself in a situation where you no longer had a dowry, but you were an aristocratic woman, you could enter the convent at a much sort of lower tier but yeah, it was, it was it was a place where many aristocratic women would retreat if they had to for various reasons, most of which often involved a man doing something that made them have to go. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> losing their dowry through gambling or causing shame on the family, etc. So both of these women have retreated. And you can see an echo here in the anarchy of Sicily. Mm. And I think one of the effects of that anarchy, you know, we've seen the fun part, we've seen the party, but we (laughs) haven't really seen what the bad side, the downside to having a sort of anarchic society is. You can see that here in, in these two women who have clearly suffered from the fact that morality and laws have not been enforced. And Isabella in particular has decided, I just don't think that involving myself in a relationship with a man through marriage or any other way is really safe in this society. Mm-hmm. And I would rather retreat and just be alone. So that's kind of who she is when we meet her. And
0: she also lets us know that her mother and father are no longer alive. So it's just her brother that she's got. And she lets us know about her kind heart by asking her friend, Mariana. I like I can see that there's something terribly wrong that you're very, very sad about. Please trust me and trust me with what it is that's making you sad. And Mariana just reminds her something we kind of guessed and you kind of alluded to. (laughs) Don't you know a woman's sorrow is always caused by love by a man. Mm -hmm. And she opens it up and pours out her whole story.
1: Yeah. and, And her story is similar as you alluded to, to several others we've heard. She's been seduced and abandoned, we may say. So Mariana, Marianne, she she says she doesn't name him, but she says that a nobleman has made promises to her, and she even says that that they've been married in secret, but that he has has abandoned her, and she is is sort of hiding out because she has nowhere else to go. Right,
0: the abandonment she blames on his inflamed ambition. is a very very ambitious man. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Putting the pieces Who together. Could this be? <laughs> So he abandoned me, his wife, and the only thing an abandoned woman can do, a woman of certain rank anyway, is to go into the cloister. It doesn't take that much questioning for her to tell Isabella, yes, my husband, Friedrich. That's my husband, mm-hmm. the regent of the king.
1: could have guessed. And this is a, a pretty big departure from Measure for Measure, but I think one done by Wagner in order to really streamline the story. Yeah. There's a lot that is left out that's in the Shakespeare. This character is in the Shakespeare, but she has a slightly different story. She was the fiancé of the Friedrich character, Mm -hmm. who, by the way, is known as Angelo in Measure for Measure. He had promised to marry her, and they had a relationship, a warm relationship. She loves him and maintains that she loves him, but her dowry gets lost at sea uh, there's a giant shipwreck and her her dowry is lost and and once that becomes clear he refuses to go through with the engagement because she doesn't have any money anymore but because she's been engaged she is well she's stuck because she loves him and she wants to marry him but also she's stuck because no one else would have her because it is assumed that the engagement was likely consummated so She's in a terrible position. She's not in the convent in Measure for Measure. She's actually just in a house that's surrounded by a moat. So there's a very <laughs> metaphorical prison there. Yeah. Um, and she's kind of whiling away her days alone, waiting for justice to be done. And she, she will gain an ally in her friendship with Isabella in Measure for Measure. But in the opera, they are it's more streamlined. They're more conveniently placed together. They have similar right. decisions being made to go into the convent together. And Isabella, as you said, expresses a great deal of sympathy and understanding and reinforces her own decision is probably the right one to exit the world of men. Yeah, yeah. Let's
0: hear a little bit of these two sisters at the convent singing together. sisters in the convent and they aren't alone for all that long before the bell rings there's a visitor to the convent ah it's a man
1: (laughs) oh no oh no (laughs) could only bring trouble (laughs) which he does complication
0: anyway yeah for sure
1: yeah so Lucio has been true to his word. He's a, he's a decent friend, I guess you could say. He's come to visit Isabella and to beg her to intercede on her brother's behalf.
0: Yeah. He explains to Isabella what the problem is. And it's so interesting that Isabella's first question, when she hears the name Julia, this woman that she knows her brother Claudio likes, he's like, did he dishonor her? And is like, no, well, not exactly. He wants to marry her. <laughs> But it's too late. He's been imprisoned and they're going to execute him. So Isabella wants to be mad at her brother for his behavior Mm -hmm. that he jumped the gun a little bit there. And her love for her brother will be the dominant emotion. Mm -hmm. But she's getting worked up over this whole issue and not for the first time in this opera. The man watching the woman become impassioned about an issue Well, he's finding her kind of attractive.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she's, um, you know, Isabella's formidable. I think that she's a cool character. She's interesting in both the opera and the play. She has the courage of her convictions and she believes what she believes. And right before Lucio comes in, she's been giving this very impassioned speech of these crimes shouldn't go unpunished. So it's a little bit of a, Be careful what you wish for, of course. The second that she wishes for harsher punishments for the crimes done against her friend, she sees that those crimes have been committed as well to a degree by her own brother. So it's worth saying here briefly that... Claudio is in a different place than Mariana's Friedrich in the sense that he does love Julia he wants to marry her right. he, his intentions are good and that's why we forgive his character a little bit more but he also knows the society that he lives in he knows the laws that he lives under mm-hmm. and he has put her in danger he's put her in a yeah. situation where he's made her vulnerable in a way that he shouldn't have if he just waited until they were married before consummating the marriage
0: if he had just waited yes
1: (laughs) but waiting is not a thing this character does so you get once again there's no balance it's either all or nothing either it's chastity or it's lewdness. so Isabella is passionate and she loves her brother and she hates injustice and she is fired up about all of these things Lucio is watching it. This is not in measure for measure. I will say, um, but it's a nice little little preview of another character who will react similarly to to Isabella. She is fired up, and he just says, oh wow she is she is so beautiful, yes, when she's fired up. she's beautiful when she's angry, I guess is what he's saying right <laughs> and he says to her, he says, "Well, you know what? convent is not for you, you're too pretty, right." And he says, "You should take my hand. You should marry me." Is basically what he's saying. You know, he completely forgets what he's there for. Oh, for his minute. offers
0: of marriage are not worth a lot, I think. <laughs>
1: no, true. Not the first uh, nor the last woman. But she sort of says, "Wake up. Come to your senses." There's some serious stuff. We've going got a Claudio to save here. Right, proposing marriage to me. <laughs> But yes, I mean, it's every man that we've encountered so far, I will say, has the same set of flaws, which is a a weakness when it comes to to beautiful women.
0: Absolutely. But she is such a great character, I think, in this opera and in the play as well. She is determined to do the right thing. And she is angry at the hypocrite Frederick because she knows more about Frederick than most people do. Mm -hmm. And she's angry. She even says at one point, I glow with passion, the passion for righteousness, the passion to set things right. So let's listen to a little bit of this scene between these two, where Isabella is convinced that she needs God's strength to go and do what's right by her brother. And Lucio, he's, he's, yeah, let's save Claudio. But oh my goodness, you're pretty.
2: (laughs) Yes, exactly.
0: For everyone, we are listening to Das Liebesverbot, the Ban on Love, an early opera by Richard Wagner, taken from more or less from Shakespeare's Measure for Measure and Kathleen. We've had our scene in the town square of Palermo with the revelers and learning about this ban, this strict enforcement of the laws by the Regent of the King. We've had a scene in the convent, and now we find ourselves at the law courts.
1: Yes. So we have a sort of extended scene here that's mainly there, I think, for comedy. It's it's a, a funny hearkening back to the opening scene where you have the attempt to enforce these old laws, mm. and the people themselves are are very much resisting. And... Protesting their natural right to live their lives in, in the way that they see fit. Yeah. So you have Regella, the buffa uh, policeman, yeah. <laughs> kind of a, a silly figure. There's all these petitioners at the law court who are bringing their complaints against the fact that they've been charged with various crimes that they think shouldn't be crimes. And there's all these these moral delinquents, is, is what Wagner refers to them as. Yeah. And he's trying to examine them, and he's trying to impose some sort of order on this situation and use the the very rusty court system to actually enforce these laws. And you get the, the return of Dorella, you get a very funny character named, <laughs> named after Pontius Pilate. Yeah, he's like, yeah, oh, yeah, my parents,
0: <laughs> they just wanted me to uh, take the name and then make it seem like a good name.
1: <laughs> yeah, who is, by the way, his the, the sort of equivalent-ish character in Measure for His name is Pompey Bum. So, oh
0: my goodness!
1: Shakespeare. Um, it's like Wagner tries to to make a, a different, uh, maybe slightly more elevated joke, but Shakespeare goes straight straight for the groundlings on that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so you get this 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 sort of comic scene where he's trying to examine these people, and they they just won't won't allow him to do his his work, and in particular.
0: Dorella seems to be making a real fool of Brigella, this captain of the police. She can tell in an instant that her charms are working on him. Brigella may be passing sentence on these guys, but he's not going to pass sentence on her. And he realizes that he's almost putty in her hands.
2: Mhm
1: which is is very funny but it's also brings home the idea that in a society like this where the law is in in disorder women often have to use one specific set of skills in order to prevent themselves from being put into danger which is their skills of, of their wiles their flirting yeah and the one character who will be asked to do that is isabella mm-hmm. and she is the one character who will refuse to use that kind of for feminine power to influence things but dorella is a character who who knows that that's what she has to do
0: right and she also realizes in spite of lucio saying sure i'll help you she doesn't really count on him
1: well she's right not to (laughs) yeah so you have this very comic scene and then a very strong transition when friedrich our german ice cold leader comes in and I just briefly want to say that one major difference in the character. So you've got Angelo, who is the Friedrich character in Measure for Measure. The Duke um, in Measure for Measure, who has placed Angelo in charge. The major difference mm. is that he has not actually left right. the scene. So the Duke is always in the shadow in on stage. And he'll have these little asides and, and soliloquies here and there. He is actually testing Angelo. And trying to see what would happen uh-huh. if Angelo was able to do what he wants to do, that isn't the case in the opera. The king is is completely absent right. until the end. But there is this idea of being watched. He's often compared to to Shakespeare. He's like a Shakespearean figure. He's the, he's the sort of the playwright watching his characters um, and seeing oh. what they do. So I think that's kind of a, an interesting valence. But in the opera, that would be very difficult, I think, to do. And so it's very simplified here in the sense that Friedrich is, is obviously extremely unsuited for the job that the king has given him, which perhaps makes us doubt the king. But the, he has the iron fist and he is ready to pass judgment upon Claudia. Well,
0: it's interesting because you're right. It is a stark change of tone when Friedrich shows up. And we're going to listen to him in just a second. But He's not a buffa character, but in some ways he's comical because of his over mm-hmm. acting of sternness. You know, like, oh, I'm going to lay down the law here. He comes in. The first thing he says is you reprobates. And then he just tears into them all with their <laughs> bad morality and everything he disapproves of.
1: He reminds me so much of the Claude Frollo character in the animated Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> In fact, this whole storyline reminds me of it a little bit because that character is the same. He's very religious. He's very upstanding. The people are trying to have their sort of festival of fools and he is so disapproving. But secretly, when you see him alone, he's dreaming of Esmeralda mm-hmm. and how beautiful well, she there you is. Go. And it's a similar thing with, with this character where, I mean, I guess that's an obvious parallel. The, the very straight-laced character who's extremely religious is hiding history of, of something quite the opposite. Yes, he's
0: going to repress his own desire by clamping down on everyone else's. Well, let's hear a little bit of ah. this character, Friedrich.
4: Verworfenesfeu Seid ihr denn ganz versunken im Fuhl der Lüste Im Schlamme der Begierden, Nur nach Vergnügen Beide steht euer Trachten in Rausch und Verlust. Schwärmt ihr nur das Leben. That's sündenvolle treiben, als mich des Königs holt hier berufen. Ich gab ihm meinen Abscheid zu erkennen. Ihr fühlte wahrlich ihn so tief wie ich.
0: You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined
1: by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandewell. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station.
0: If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast, where you can find scores of past episodes.
1: Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up.
0: Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone where we are doing a very early Richard Wagner opera Das Liebesverbot, the ban on love. Based on Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. I'm Pat Wright and I'm here with Kathleen Vandewil. Kathleen, ooh, I love this opera.
1: Yes, this is this is great fun. I, I love hearing some early Wagner, very new to me.
0: Well, it's really interesting because you you do get a sense and I think some of the songs that are coming up, we're gonna get a, a real sense of that emotion and the power that he gives to some of the sopranos. Who are upset and that sounds very Wagnerian to my ears but there are also bits of it that sound a little italian it we knew, we do know he loved and admired Rossini's work as an Italian composer but he he wanted to be a, a German composer and come up with the German style of opera well before we go any further with our actual opera we would like to give thanks please and recognize the people who created this lovely CD that we're listening to it was recorded in 2012 in Frankfurt with the Alta Oper Frankfurt. The conductor of the orchestra was Sebastian Weigel, and the director of the choir was Matthias Kohler.
1: The role of Friedrich is sung by Michael Nagy. Lucio is Peter Bronder. Claudio is Charles Reed. Isabella is Christiane Libor. Mariana, Anna Gabler. Brigella, Thorsten Grumbel. Dorella, Anna Ryberg.
0: Thank you one and all for this great music that we've been listening to. And and just listening to that list,
1: it's, there's a lot
0: going on in this show with all of these people.
1: Yes, there are many strong female roles in this, which I, I really like.
0: Yeah, agreed. Well, speaking of strong females, Kathleen, you write a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful blog on Substack, Constructive Criticism. We've mentioned it before on Opera for Everyone, but if you haven't checked it out, please do check out on Substack, Constructive Criticism, where... Kathleen talks about popular culture and I know that with all of our discussion of Shakespeare you've also been discussing Shakespeare on Substack on Constructive Criticism.
1: Yeah, I have been doing a a limited series on different film Shakespeare adaptations. I did one on King Lear, Mm. and I also review various other shows, movies, things happening in the the world of entertainment. So yeah, check it out.
0: It's a great guide. I I really appreciate reading it. I I always learn something, and I still don't know how you stay on top of all this stuff. (laughs)
1: Neither do I. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Pat, a little unconventional, but would you do the opera helmet quiz for us?
0: I almost never do it. Not never, but rarely. Sure, I will be happy to talk about what we've talked about in the first half. Act 1, Scene 1 starts in a town square in Palermo, Sicily. And uh, we have a lot of revelers enjoying themselves, but not completely because they've been told that they've got to stop having fun. Mm -hmm. There's a new sheriff in town, as it were. The king has left, and he's left intriguingly this German Friedrich in charge and Friedrich wants to institute strict morals there's laws that have been on the books but unenforced and different people are falling victim to these laws most significantly to our plot is Claudio who is a nobleman friend of Lucio also a nobleman good time Charlies in a way although Claudio wants to marry the young woman that he's been intimate with nevertheless They were not married and so he has been sentenced to death. He appeals to his friend, Lucio, to go to the convent to meet with his sister so that the sister can plead on his behalf and see if perhaps he can be set free and not condemned to death. Next scene, we're in the convent garden and his sister, Isabella, is there with another novice, Mariana, and they are being novices in a in the convent and Isabella finds out from Mariana when she inquires as to why she's sad that Mariana in fact is a married woman but she was abandoned by her husband a very ambitious man and it turns out that that man in fact is this very same Friedrich who as a german interestingly rose to this position of prominence where he's been entrusted by the King with ruling this area in Sicily. About the time that this is all discovered, Mariana departs and Lucio shows up to plead Claudio's case. In the process of pleading Claudio's case, he finds the anger that that arises in Isabella to be very attractive. So he finds himself very attracted to Isabella and Lucio is focused on the welfare of his friend, but maybe more focused on the beauty of this young novice in the convent. Scene three, the final scene of the first act, finds us in a law court and these cases of infractions against the morality code are being heard, but Friedrich, the guy really in charge, hasn't shown up yet. We have Brigella, the captain of police, deciding, I'll step in and deal with these people. And it's a little bit of craziness, pandemonium, all these different characters who've been charged with small infractions. And he's not really a strong person able to enforce the law as he wishes, (laughs) but things are gonna change in tone when Friedrich arrives. And that's the last piece of music that we heard in part one when Friedrich arrives and just calls them all reprobates and has complete disdain for them. couple comments. Once again, we always, when we're dealing with Wagner, we always have to acknowledge that he is very good at his craft. But, you know, he was a horrible person. <laughs> he was uh, not just someone who was very egotistical and self-centered, but we have these these terrible pieces that he's written against the Jews in Germany and I think any discussion of Wagner needs to at least acknowledge that. Nevertheless he is one of the artists in the canon of operatic material and we do enjoy his music. So along the lines of his extreme nationalism it's not necessarily showing up yet at this point in fact one of the reviews I read said that yeah Here we have a a young 20-something Wagner who's not yet deciding that everything that's best in the world comes out of the fatherland, comes out of Germany. And we see that a little bit here in the show, right? Because we've got this German who is relentlessly made fun of for being cold, icy. It's all these images of snow and frost as opposed to the warm-blooded, fiery, burning embers of the Italians the Sicilians here in Palermo so it's kind of an interesting moment to take a peek at what's going on with Wagner oh and the other thing I wanted to mention is now and always Wagner writes his own librettos okay well I have a question for you Kathleen measure for measure Shakespeare's play which is the inspiration for this opera I know you talked about balance with measure for measure, but there's there's got to be more to this title.
1: Yeah, it, it comes from a Bible passage, a Bible quote. It's uh, from the book of Matthew. It's probably more famous as the judge not lest you be judged passage or the, oh. the golden rule passage. Mm. So it's, there's a section of that that says, for what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And what measure you meet for you measure, it shall be measured to you again. So basically the idea behind that is the way that you measure others is the way they will measure you. So you have to have balance and you also have to understand that the people that you are judging are also judging you. And that you shouldn't judge each other and <laughs> you should have have mercy and, and grace and all, all sorts of very recognizable Christian ideals are going into the, the title of this, this play and there's a lot of biblical allusions, very overt biblical metaphor in this play, most especially in the the title characters. Confusingly, in the opera, there's a character, Angelo, but he, he is not a major character. But in the play, Angelo is the Friedrich character. Angelo, a reference to angelic, an angelic nature, which is something that character, I think, certainly strives to have and continually fails. And then you have Mariana, (laughs) um, which is obviously a, a reference to the Virgin Mary. And she is caught in a situation where she's married but not married, that kind of idea. So there's a lot of biblical references rife throughout Shakespeare, but this one particularly, and particularly with its overt Catholic, well, not just overtones, but plot structure. We have a, a, a novice nun is one of our main characters, a good amount of this takes place in a convent. In the play, the king or, or duke character hasn't gone off. He's actually hiding in a monastery, dressed as a father, as a friar. So there's there are very few plays that are this Catholic. There's a lot of Catholic references. Mm-hmm. One may remember Romeo and Juliet has a friar. But this is a very Catholic play, very concerned with Catholic ideals of morality, which is interesting given its time period. This is a play Shakespeare wrote under... James, King James I, so not an Elizabethan-era play. It's one of his later plays, one of his latest comedies. James had a lot of supposed and actual Catholic enemies. Catholics were very persecuted during this time in England. And it, there's, there's an idea that uh, Shakespeare's father was probably a secret Catholic as well. Um, and Oh, maybe Shakespeare that's himself. interesting. I
0: hadn't heard that before.
1: <laughs> yeah, he was a, a lifelong recusant, which means he just refused to go to church. And a lot of people assumed the reason was that he was Catholic. And that had a lot of attendant consequences on him and his family's life. Obviously, Shakespeare himself has been a rumored Catholic, but there's, a, you know, Shakespeare's a rumored everything, I think, these days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's an interesting play for that, too. and. Very interesting that it takes place in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the actual play, but they move it to another overtly Catholic country, to, to Italy, right. for the opera.
0: 16th century, though. Yes, mm-hmm. yes.
1: So, yeah, it's there's some very, very intriguing Catholic things going on here.
0: Yeah, and one of the scenes that's coming up is focusing very much on the carnival, this, this period of celebration before you go into the period of repentance leading up to Easter. So are we ready to carry on with our plot?
1: I think so. So when we last left our characters, they were in the law court, and Claudio's case was about to, to come before the stone-hearted Friedrich.
0: Yes, yes, and I love the the response that the crowd has to the song that we listen to at the end of the first half. Oh, he's very devout in his speech, but he must be inspired by the devil.
1: <laughs> Those Sicilians, they got away with words. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, now that Frederick has arrived, it's safe for Isabella to come in and plead the case of her brother, and she does so with great passion and feeling.
1: Well, we've already seen her speak with passion and feeling in a in a most becoming way according to Lucio earlier. Yes. So we've gotten a taste yes. of how passionate she can be. She's a woman with extremely strongly held beliefs. Yes. Yeah, so she pleads Claudio's case. I think she believes that Claudio has done something wrong, but she's begging mercy. She's not trying to say he's innocent or you shouldn't punish him, but she's saying you have to have clemency, you have to have mercy. Right and that his fault is very human. She emphasizes that, that people are not angels, that they're, they're human.
0: And before she she actually gets into the details of pleading her case, because we always have this giant chorus on the stage and, and lots of wonderful pieces that come in this opera because of that, she's like, I need to speak to you alone. So that gives the chorus a chance to get off stage. And she's speaking only to Friedrich and Friedrich can let us know as the audience how how exciting he finds. Her appearance her speech and pretty much everything about her and when she notices some of this she uses that again in her devout belief this is love is something that god has given she says
1: yes isabella sees that her words are having an effect and mm. i think they're having more of an effect than perhaps she notices but she does see that they're having an effect and we see that friedrich well, it's it's almost as if a lightning bolt has struck him. Yeah, He experiences desire, not for the first time, of course. We know that he has married another woman. But a desire that is is new in intensity to him. And the ice of his heart sort of melts. And he thinks she's so beautiful when she's passionate. And he starts to almost lose it. A little bit yeah and he makes her a very indecent proposal
0: yes yes I will just point out what you said there that he uses these words the ice is melting your glow your fire which will go through the whole show but she's suddenly realizes oh he's not just buying my argument about my brother (laughs) this is about (laughs) me
1: Yes, and it, as, as we said earlier, this is an echo of Lucio's reaction to her when she said similar things, that these men, they would love it when she's passionate and angry. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess is, is sort of useful to her purposes, but ends up going far too far, as everything does in this play. It's all about imbalance in the opera. So the imbalance here is that Friedrich goes from a cold man who shows no desire to a man overwhelmed by his own desire. and ruled by it, and he becomes the opposite of what he is. So he was a rule follower, a rule enforcer, very strict, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden he is asking her if she will give herself to him, and if she does, he says he will save her brother's life. So quite a rapid reversal in his character.
0: Right, and when he becomes crystal clear about what he expects from her in order to free the brother she's like you hypocrite and that word gets used a lot in this show Mm -hmm. but I will expose you for the hypocrite you are you say you are this upstanding man with morality top of all and here you are propositioning me and and bribing me to free my brother
2: Mm -hmm.
0: as feisty as she is he's like wait a minute that's not going to work you cannot convince them I'm a hypocrite because I'm the powerful man no one will believe you
1: Yes, and he has, not only is he powerful, he has a reputation as being the opposite of this, as being a man made of ice. And her first thought, which I think is interesting here, is to tell everyone. There are already people that are starting to stream into the hall because there's this pandemonium outside that we spoke of earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, And her first thought is, I am going to raise my voice. I'm going to tell everyone exactly what he did. Because in a way, she always has more faith in humanity than anyone else does in this play. And I think she immediately thinks, if I I tell everybody they're gonna believe me, but he's right. I well, who knows if he's right? We don't really know. But but she believes he's right at this moment. Yeah. Yeah, and she understands the gender politics of the world she lives in. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. even though she has status because she is a nun and a, and a noble woman, his status is always going to be higher than hers because of his gender. So she subsides and doesn't reveal him as a hypocrite.
0: Which he finds so attractive again because she's suppressing all of
1: this. (laughs) He's just terrible. She can't can't do anything that's not gonna, you know, inflame him.
0: But then she then she realizes she can formulate a plan to fix this.
1: Yes. so the the lightning bolt now strikes her. Mm. She's very intelligent and in her despair in this situation she suddenly realizes that she has a trump card she has mariana and she suddenly has the idea that if she can only turn this to account and switch places in a way with Mm -hmm. mariana then she can reveal that he is a hypocrite by catching him in the act as it were right and save everybody save her brother's life get mariana and friedrich back together again god help her (laughs) (laughs) and probably save everybody by revealing that their ruler is himself human.
0: Great, so let's listen to essentially the thunderbolt striking Isabella when she realizes she can reunite Mariana with her husband. She can make clear that Friedrich is a hypocrite. And once this thunderbolt strikes, she suddenly has an interchange with Friedrich where she's submissive. Oh yes, you will save my brother. I will do what you want. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. opera for everyone and things are getting pretty intense here with Friedrich thinking he's getting what he wants Isabella believing she's getting what she wants in Richard Wagner's early opera Das Liebesverbot. Kathleen we've just concluded act one well between these two and then of course all the rest of the folks jump on stage and express their opinions as well <laughs> but that is the summation of what happens in act one and act two finds us in the prison garden
1: Yes, Isabella is visiting her brother and she is unfolding this plan to him. And importantly here, she's testing him a little bit. Mm. She's she's trying to figure out whether he is I think sort of if he's worth saving honestly she's a very morally <laughs> black and white woman I think in some ways yeah not that she wouldn't try to save him but but she sort of reveals these proposals to him and says basically Friedrich has said that if I give him myself and, and today it's like do what do you want me to do do you think this is a thing I should do
0: and she's very happy with his first <laughs> response where he yes. says I would gladly give my life for yours I will die defending <laughs> your honor and she's She's reasonably satisfied with that answer, interestingly.
1: (laughs) Yes, which is completely opposite from what happens in the original source. So in Measure for Measure, Claudio begs her on his knees to save him and to go through with the deal. And she rebukes him so strongly in the text. And she even says, there's something sort of unnatural, almost incestuous in your basically like taking my life so that you can live. And she says, what would our father say? That you need to buck up basically. And then he has a change of heart and says, you're right. I'm willing to die for you Mm. to save you. Because once again, this is very Catholic morality. The idea that his earthly life would be worth more than her honor, her virginity, her Mm -hmm. purity as a nun. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute to her. She's saying, we'll both be in heaven eventually. It's better if we both go there without this sin on our conscience. And he says, you're right. And she says, I hear our father speaking through you. So it's it's interesting. There's a little bit of a reversal there. Right, because here in the opera, he starts out
0: being noble and willing to sacrifice himself. Then <laughs> he thinks about it a little longer and says, <laughs> well, I mean... Couldn't you just, (laughs) so I could live, I could marry Julia. It'll be, you'll be okay. It'll be fine. You'll be fine. Mm -hmm. It's not such a big deal. (laughs) And she loses it. And I love this clip that we're going to play coming up next. We have this enraged soprano and she lets him know how disappointed she is in him. Of course, all the time in the back of her mind, she's like, I'm not doing this thing anyway. I was just testing to see what my brother was made of. She's already knows she's going to substitute Mariana in her scheme, mm-hmm. but she is furious that he would even entertain this. But you're right. It's it does seem very different the order in which these <laughs> ideas are expressed. Yeah.
1: And she leaves him in doubt too as we'll we'll see after this. Absolutely.
5: Oh,
0: between brother and sister here in Wagner's Das Liebesverbot. Claudio and Isabella are facing very high stakes, both of them, or so Isabella wants Claudio to think. and because he's suggesting she dishonor herself in order to save his life, she wants to punish him. She
1: does. She kind of takes on both the roles of, in the original play, there's this Duke character who's the king in this opera, who's absent the whole time. We talked about this, that he's not absent. He's actually, he's watching this very scene in Measure for Measure. But she in the opera is kind of both of these characters Mm -hmm. because he's always testing and judging people and prolonging their sorrow See what will happen and how they'll react, and she takes that on. You know, she wants to punish him. She's she's very harsh um, and leaves him thinking that he's going to be executed. But she's happy because she thinks that'll do him some good. Yeah. I feel like she has to be an older sister. <laughs> she's got yeah. that, that that feel. She's <laughs> gonna she's gonna correct
0: her younger brother. Yeah. Well, you know, she's already mentioned the fact that their parents are gone. And she does in fact say at one point she has a, a a big piece that she sings where she's working this all through in her own mind. She says, with Claudio, the fear of death is what will make him atone for his bad behavior. Well, <clears throat> Not, not quite probably. (laughs) And then there's a little exchange with Dorella and Isabella because Dorella's the one who's going to deliver the message to Friedrich. Okay, here's where you meet me. Here's what you have to do.
1: Yes, Dorella is helping out. Lucio is also helping out. And in Isabella's extreme multitasking, she decides to also (laughs) punish him. (laughs) Lucio. Well, he's been a rake too, honestly. He's been a rake. And he's been a rake to her too. She, Mm -hmm. She says... In her her mind, he has proposed indecent things to a nun, mm-hmm. uh, which of course he has done. Yes. Um, so she she decides to punish him. We have this lovely trio of Dorella and Lucio and Isabella as they all intend to put this this plan into place.
0: Right but lucio is is going to be just as much in the dark as claudio about Mm -hmm. what's really going on and he's trying to placate Dorella, keep her from causing too much trouble try to make himself appealing to isabella isabella's got her own concerns it's i just love this little trio it's it's just a little snatch of what is going on with these characters because we didn't mention this is a very long opera it's wagnerian right it's (laughs) Richard Wagner he he likes his long operas he's got a lot of characters that he likes to throw up on stage and he likes them to say lots of things this is this is a wonderful little snatch of those three characters interacting
2: Jetzt machen
3: wir
0: come to the second scene of the second act of Das Liebesverbot, and we are in the quarters of Friedrich as he is waiting with great anticipation to hear from Isabella where he is to meet her and he's stealing himself up for this huge moral infraction but says he can't he can't fight it
1: yes he's in some despair and desire and he seems to be experiencing these things sort of for the first time yeah and he sings about his, uh, as we've said, he uses a lot of sort of ice and fire metaphors. And he's singing about how the ice of his heart has been melted, and she's this sort of fiery flame that's consuming him. And then Brigella comes in mm-hmm. Brigella, our Bufa constable.
0: Yes, <laughs> he's got work to do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Brigella comes in and and introduces Dorella, who has the letter that Isabella has written, and gives that to Friedrich. And they sort of stand there waiting for his response. And Friedrich reads the letter, and Isabella lays out the terms for their Mm. meeting. So they're going to meet at the, the end of the parade, at the exit, and she will be masked and... Basically everything that's needed to ensure that Isabella can affect a little bit of a trick here. So you'll yes. never see my face. And it's similar in the play. In the play, it's, it's darkness is what mm. she asks for. She says, there has to be total darkness and you can't speak. Oh. And <laughs> I won't speak. And that's the only conditions under which I will allow us to, to do this. So that's how she affects it in, in the play. But a very similar technique and, and masking is much easier to, to show in an opera, I think. Right, that he also
0: must wear a mask and disguise his identity. It's just part of her humiliation for him, I believe, that he's got to break another rule of his, Mm -hmm. that that this was forbidden and he must break that rule. But it's interesting, as he hands... A note to Brighella to be delivered to the prison regarding Claudio we assume oh that's the the quid pro quo that's the Mm -hmm. the pardon for him but no he tells us Claudio you will die and I will follow you because he believes his infraction is going to be so great he's going into it knowingly but he is willing to pay the price for his infraction Mm -hmm. one of the things he says is very powerful I believe after passion comes death Mm -hmm. but I I do want to say speaking of operas (laughs) granted 1900 was when Puccini wrote Tosca but this reminds me a little bit of in Tosca where Scarpio pretends that he is going to free Tosca's lover from the death sentence so that he can be with Tosca I mean arguably Friedrich is as bad as Scarpia
1: yeah once again poor Mariana is all I've got to say (laughs) You know, she's married to this man, and he really doesn't show himself to advantage at any point. He just gets worse and worse. Yeah, that's true. He's self-destructive and willing to take everyone down. He even says that he's going to take Isabella down, too, because he says, I want to sort of give Isabella both to God and hell. I think there's this idea in his mind that if he does this with her, he's condemning himself, but also her, to hell. Mm -hmm. So he really wants to burn everything down. He
0: really does. And then we have a moment with sort of this little B couple more <laughs> or less. Well, I don't know, Dorella couples up with several people, but Brigella, who finds that Dorella is quite attractive, says, "Oh, forget this ridiculous ban. I was trying to impose it. I don't believe it in anymore." Dorella I want you.
1: Yes. And, and so she goes, okay, well, why don't we both echo this and we'll both be masked and we can, we can have our moment together.
0: Yes, yes. And I love the fact that she tells him, I will come as Columbine, the ingenue, the sexy woman in mm-hmm. Commedia dell'arte, that's this old time entertainment of the Italians. And she tells him, You must come as Pierrot. This is this hapless clown, the one who doesn't succeed. He's not Harlequin, who ultimately typically ends up with Columbine he's the one who who wants to end up with Columbine so I think that's a fascinating <laughs> suggestion for her to make that he has to come as the the sad clown who doesn't mm-hmm. really get the girl
1: yeah it's really funny and then she kind of gives him this quick little kiss and he has this really sweet moment they, they provide so much levity here where he says wow a kiss this is what they're trying to prohibit it's just a kiss it's it's There's nothing evil in this. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And he says, if he wants to prohibit this, he really is a German, which is just such a funny line coming from Wagner. Yes. Well, this was, yeah, (laughs) this was early Wagner. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, the next scene
0: is where it's all going to happen. It's all going to come together. Lots and lots of people on stage and the carnival is starting. Let's just start off with this beginning of the final scene of the final act of this opera where the carnival is beginning and then Lucio is going to be the good time Charlie calling everyone to revelry and fun, even though it's still technically forbidden, but he doesn't care. But I want to point out that this music in the beginning matches that overture, that happy, peppy, let's all have fun music. And then we'll hear just a little bit of Lucio. (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: to opera for everyone. This is Wagner's Das Liebesverbot, and we have been listening to scenes of carnival revelry that (laughs) seem joyful and excited, but there's a bit of an edge to them.
0: Not technically legal, but eh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) True. These these carnival revelries are are not legal, and the crowd has been singing about how they're doing this despite of the illegality, sort of uh, thumbing their nose at the, the new government but Lucio being Lucio just takes it a little far and as the scene progresses he's singing this song trying to rouse the crowd get everyone going and he says he finally says you know anybody who's not enjoying themselves we should just kill them we should just stab them with a <laughs> knife extreme and it becomes this sort of this little like uh this is a, you know our joy it's our right to be happy and to be at the carnival and if anyone tries to stop us we'll stop them mm-hmm. so there's there's an edge to this revelry and there's a frenzy to the crowd yeah and into this comes Mariana and Isabella who are both They're both masked in identical Mm. masks. And all of our other characters are are on stage. We've got Brigella and Dorella searching for each other. We've got Isabella and Mariana. We've got Lucio and the whole chorus and everybody. So it's a big, big crowd scene here. And there's a lot going on. But we stop for a moment to have this lovely little scene where Mariana is able to sing about what she's about to do, which is seduce her own husband. The way that's a painful, but also kind of a way for her to take back the power that has been taken from her in this relationship. And Mariana's an interesting character. I know we talk a lot about Isabella as a strong female character, but Mariana, too. One thing we've talked about is measure for measure itself and, and this opera. The popularity has been a bit uneven, I would say over the the centuries. Mm. Measure for Measure is a difficult play. People don't really know what to do with it, but one group that really loved it was the Pre-Raphaelite painters in the, the mid to late oh. 19th century. And there is a very, very beautiful, famous, probably one of the most famous paintings by John Everett Millay called Mariana, which is this portrait of his vision of her. And William Holman Hunt painted Isabella and Claudio. There's several really, really beautiful oh, paintings. Interesting. They found this story fit in with their obsessions, which were medieval times, strict Catholic morality, Mm. imbalances in passion. All those things are are things the paraphernalites love to to paint about.
0: Yeah, the the Peraphalite painting that comes to my mind is that one of Ophelia, speaking of Shakespeare, suffering women Mm -hmm. it's not really the same situation with mariana or isabella but these are women who are suffering within the strictures of their times
1: yeah and i mean that's malay's probably his most famous painting and Mm. his first that really got him off the ground so to see him return to another shakespearean heroine who is a bit tragic maybe Mm -hmm. more than a bit tragic we will see soon that there's a lot of marriages that round this out but I don't think Mariana can be left as entirely happy considering who her husband is.
0: Yes, yes. We'll remind ourselves that we identified this as one of Shakespeare's problem plays early on. Yes,
1: yes. (laughs) But yes, Mariana continues to be an interesting heroine and her fate is is a bit uncertain. Hmm.
0: We turn to Friedrich, who's on stage looking around for Isabella. Lucio shows up and he, as you say, insists everyone enjoy the revelry. And Friedrich is, he's there for a purpose. He's not really there to be partying in the streets. <laughs> he doesn't, uh, he doesn't fight Lucio as hard as you might think he would.
1: Yes, yes. Yes. But Isabella at least seems to think that she needs to distract him from this fight, even though he's not really maybe trying as hard as he could be. So she sort of calls out and shouts, and he he's led sort of away from the fight because of that. So Isabella, she comes out of hiding. She's sort of rejoicing that this plan is working. Mm-hmm. This very complicated plan is working. When she she comes into possession of this letter that Friedrich has written that she believes contains the pardon for her brother.
0: She's got connections.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of complicated things going on. So we're going to simplify it a little bit. She gets Mm -hmm. the letter and she opens it and she realizes that it contains his death warrant instead. She is
0: furious,
1: livid, uncontained. Uh, Which means she's more beautiful than ever. (laughs) Yes,
0: and I think we need to hear this passion of anger from Isabella because this is one of the things that Wagner does so well. That was a very angry Isabella right at the end of Wagner's take on Measure for Measure by Shakespeare in his very early opera, Das Liebesverbot*. She's furious, and she's also not going to be dissuaded from trying to draw everyone else into the argument. She's not going to be cowed anymore. She calls him out for the tyrant and hypocrite that he is and says, you must overthrow him. But Lucio... He's not convinced because he thinks that she's the hypocrite.
1: Yes. And he's, I think, a little a little upset because she's rejected him, too. So yeah. he, he is suddenly on the wrong side of things and, and says, no, 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 don't, don't believe her. She's a crazy woman. And so Isabella is just even more upset.
0: <laughs> he's furious at her because she will not save her brother, he believes. And she has come up with a plan to save her brother. But she hasn't really let anyone in on the details other than Mariana or maybe Dorella.
1: Yeah, and she's kept it from them. That's why she has the letter sent to her first rather than to him because she doesn't want him to know that he's been saved, which kind of kind of bites her a little bit because <laughs> then she loses Lucio's support. Uh, so there's a yeah. lot of confusion. There's a lot going on here. <laughs> Absolutely. And
0: Isabella tries to say, no, Lucio, friend of my brother, we have all been tricked. And he's mm-hmm. just calling her a disgrace. A scammer and he wants nothing to do with her. He's furious mm-hmm. that she's gonna allow her brother to die, his good friend.
1: Right. So then we have this hilarious little additional confusion where we hear Brigella is is crying out for help. Yes. Because he has been chasing Dorella mm-hmm. and he thinks that Friedrich is after Dorella. So he's grabbed Friedrich and unmasked him. <laughs> And then all yes. of a sudden realizes he's got the guy in charge of, of everything. Oops. Sorry, boss. <laughs> um, and Mariana yeah. is right next to him. And she's sort of clinging to him. And the, the understanding is that they've been together. And yes. they recognize her. And everybody's going, oh, my gosh, what's going on? Yes, yes. And everybody s- explains themselves. and <laughs> And Isabella's plan is finally sort of untangled. And everybody understands what's going on.
0: Right, Mariana just says, no, it's fine. I'm his wife, I'm his wife. And everybody's (laughs) like,
1: his wife? We didn't know he had a wife. (laughs) Yeah. So Friedrich realizes what's happened. And Mm. he realizes that he's both been duped, he's been turned into the clown, Mm -hmm. and that he has been revealed. So he asks to be judged by the king when he comes back and, and expects to be executed just as he ordered Claudio's execution. Mm -hmm. While all this has been happening backstage, Claudio has been set free from prison by a riot (laughs) that has attacked the prison and and let everyone free. Yeah, the people, no more. Like, Friedrich, you're Mm -hmm. out.
0: Nobody trusts you. You have no authority anymore. We're going to set things right. Yes. This is one of the interesting things about this interpretation of this story, as opposed to how it's presented in Shakespeare, as I understand it, because in Shakespeare, things are set right by the authority of the guy in charge. He's the one who's Mm -hmm. been hiding in the shadows all along. He's been pulling a few strings. He's the one who sets things right at the end. Whereas in this story, the people, the populace, Mm -hmm. they set things right. Mm -hmm. The mob, Lucio, in charge of them, they set the wrongly imprisoned Claudio free. Isabella... She's trying to set things right. She's a normal person. She's not got any governmental authority. And Friedrich is ready to die for his infractions. And there's this wonderful thing that everyone says right near the end where they said, no, we have repealed the law. That's what the people say. We have repealed the law. We want to be kinder than you. Mm -hmm. Which... By the way, that's an echo of a line from a very famous ending of an opera by Mozart. That's what the countess says at the end of Marriage of Figaro when all is revealed. I mean, there's been a bed trick here. There's been a bed trick there where you substitute the wrong person when the, when the count wants to have a dalliance with Susanna. It, in fact, is his wife. And he says, OK, I deserve to be punished. And she says, no, no, I am kinder than you. Mm-hmm. And so I love the fact that they have essentially the same line here, where the people say, we want to be kinder than this authority, which has existed up to now.
1: Right. And it's, um, I mean, the thing it most forcibly brings to my mind, though, is, well, is the French Revolution. It's its almost like a, a replay of the French Revolution, but in a more positive sense, the, the whole stabbing people thing um, notwithstanding. You know, there's yeah. the, the the Bastille storming. We get a scene where that happens with the, the prison is stormed and the, the head of state is deposed. There's a, a threat of decapitation. <laughs> But, you know, obviously this is the late 1830s. The French Revolution would still be very much in people's minds. And it almost feels like Wagner is saying, well, maybe you should trust the people because the people are kind. If you work them into a Mm. frenzy and they take control, then they are going to be kinder than these these evil, hard-hearted rulers. But, of course, that's very much the opposite of how it played out in real life.
0: And in his early years, Wagner is a revolutionary. He is on the Mm -hmm. side of the people who are looking for significant change in fact it's something he has to atone for later on when royal authority is quite strong Mm. and that's part of wagner's complicated biography but here we really do get the power of the people setting things right
1: yes and so to sort of wrap our story up Mm. the the king is going to return we hear that he's going to land very soon and so all of this nonsense has to be cleaned up very quickly. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) And so everyone decides they're going to have this carnival ten times as much as they have been to to greet their beloved king (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, because they think, okay, we have to prove to him how happy we are and how opposite of the sort of puritanism and and purity of of Friedrich, that they don't want that. It doesn't belong here. So Friedrich... Ends with Mariana because he hasn't really done anything wrong. He's just been with his own wife. He hasn't yeah. contravened these laws. He is set free as long as he's with Mariana. The idea is they they end together. And once again, God help her. Yes. <laughs> maybe maybe she'll be a good influence on him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so, you know, he's made to lead the procession and mm-hmm. greet the king. And he, mm-hmm. whether he likes it or not, has to become sort of one of, one of the crowd. Mm-hmm. And then we get kind of a I don't know a, it's a maybe an ambiguous ending is is Isabella going back to the convent what what happens to her I think it's yeah. left a little ambiguous and then you've got Dorella Brigella and Lucio and the question is sort of I don't really I don't feel like we get a, a clear idea of what happens to them everybody's sort of just swept up in this this carnival and yeah. The, the ideals of love and fox populi and everything is is very strong, but we don't get a clear idea of what happens to our characters, other than I hope Claudio gets to go marry Julia. Oh, we're just going to say yes.
0: We're, we're going to Yeah, we're going to say all. yes. Let's Everybody ends
1: happily. <laughs> but such it is in, in Measure for Measure, too. It's sort of a famously ambiguous ending where all of the couples marry except the king, who we know has been been, or the Duke in in the play, has been sort of, you know, watching everything. He has fallen in love with Isabella because he's seen her goodness and her her wisdom because he's a spy.
0: (laughs) And everyone falls in love with Isabella.
1: (laughs) Everybody falls in love with Isabella, yeah. And so he, because he's been watching her, he knows who she is. And at the end he says, the only thing that's fitting is that we wrap everything up and you and I get married. And he extends his hand to her and she's silent. She doesn't say anything, and Hmm. the play ends. So people have interpreted this in in a lot of different ways. Does she go back to the convent? She makes some sort of noises at the end of the opera that makes it sound like maybe she will, or does she embrace the carnival atmosphere and join the people? Uh, We don't really know in either play.
0: What I take from a close reading of the libretto is she's likely to go back to the convent, at least for a while. I mean, I don't know about those yeah. final vows, but I, she's, she's a novice. I think she's going back for, for a little
1: <laughs> while. Well, the world that she lives in hasn't changed which mm-hmm. I think is kind of interesting that we see at the end of the Shakespeare play that the characters and the circumstances have been balanced. There is no big carnival scene. There is no frenzy in Measure for Measure. It's, it's, um, that's very much a, an invention of this opera. But there is a balancing of, of everything at the end. And the marriages are meant to cement that balance. And the marriage of the leader, the Duke, and Isabella, I think is is sort of the final Balancing act, and a lot of people do interpret it that she will leave the convent because the world is no longer out of balance. She she went into the convent because the world was out of balance. She wanted to hide from the world, but that is no longer the case, and now she embraces her own life and and marriage. But in in this opera, that isn't really the case. You know, I mean, there's been a frenzy. There's been an overthrow of the government. (laughs) So, if I were Isabella and Mariana, to be honest, I would go back into the convent.
0: Yeah, although Mariana wasn't happy in the convent, she really did want to live out her life as a married woman. So Hmm. let's hope
1: it works out for her. (laughs) I have my doubts, but you know. (laughs) Yeah, well, let's listen
0: to some of this final scene in the opera and the end of this very, very early opera by Wagner, Das Liebesverbot. Kathleen. Thank you once again for helping me out with another show, with helping me out with Shakespeare. Always a pleasure.
1: Always, always happy to do so. I can't wait to do it again.
0: of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined
1: by Kathleen VanderWil.
0: If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. Opera can be challenging.
1: But everyone loves a good story. And a story
0: set to music is even better.
1: Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe opera opera is
0: for everyone. everyone.